Father in heaven, we know and believe that no one is here by accident. Many have been here hundreds of times. For some, it may be the first time. For all of us, we know that we are here for a reason and you want to say something to us. Please speak. May I decrease, may Jesus increase, do a work in our hearts to convict us of sin, to draw us to Jesus and to equip us for a life of obedience. You have given us everything and in that grace we stand and because of that grace we Desperately want to live as different people, changed people. So come and minister to us by your Spirit. May your word go forth with great power and clarity and authority. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We'll be reading from Second Peter chapter 3. Beginning at verse 14 through the end of the book. This is page 1019 in the Blue Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Been working through 2 Peter for several months with intermittent breaks. And uh, for the rest of the year, there'll be some special Christmas things in the evening. And Ben is preaching a couple times. And starting next year uh, in the evening, Ben and I will be... Lord willing, doing a series uh, together, which will be good. Both of us are looking forward to that. Going through some different passages in the Proverbs and what it means to live a wise life. Tonight, I conclude this series from 2 Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Several weeks ago, I introduced chapter 3 by asking four questions about the day of the Lord, this day of judgment and salvation, this cataclysmic day at the end of history, the day of the Lord. I asked four questions. Number one, how can we be sure the day of the Lord will come? Number two, why has the day not yet come? Number three, what will happen when it does come? If you want to know the answers to those three questions, you can read Second Peter 3 or listen to the sermons online. The fourth one was this, how are we to live in view 
of its coming. In view of the coming of the day of the Lord, and we see in these last few verses of the book, the answer to this question, you see in verse 14, since we are waiting for these things, these things that accompany the end, we ought to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Or if you look up in verse 13, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? So how are we to live in view of the coming day of the Lord, knowing that one day the sky will part in two and Jesus will descend with his angels and he will judge the living and the dead because we believe and are waiting for that day. How ought we to live? And in a sentence, Peter's answer is we are to grow in godliness. We're going to come back to that big idea in just a few minutes and land there. But I want to start by taking a step to the side. If you look at verses 15 and 16, right in the middle of this closing summons to holiness, Peter veers off what seems to be off course. There's a purpose here. And we want to go off track with him for a few minutes. Now, on one level, Peter here in verses 15 and 16 is simply saying, hey, Paul agrees with me, which is a good thing to have. But along the way, he says some things about Scripture that are crucial for us as we think about what the doctrine of Scripture. Let me give you four things. Number one, we see that Paul's writings were regarded as Scripture. You see, verse 16, some people are twisting Paul's letters as they do the other Scriptures. The Greek word for Scripture is graphe. You can hear sort of our English word, graph, or it just means the writings. And it's used 49 other times in the New Testament. And in every instance, it refers to the, the canon of Old Testament Scripture. So it's remarkable that Peter here, somewhere in the 60s A.D., would place Paul's writings alongside the Old Testament as authoritative. They are on the same plane. That, that, that is a remarkable claim. I mean, you just sort of... Now, we, we have a closed canon, meaning we're not adding new books to the Bible. But to get a sense for how revolutionary this must have been, you think if someone were writing you a letter, some new Christian author were writing a book, and referred to... R.C. Sproul as the other scriptures, or John MacArthur, the other scriptures. No, good, not scripture. But Peter doesn't hesitate to, or to place Paul in this category. And what's even more remarkable, he doesn't even bother to defend it. He, he just states it as if to say this is obvious. There is no point of contention here. He can, he can throw this out as part of his larger argument knowing, oh yes, everyone would agree with this. So apparently, they already recognized and assumed and treated Paul's writings in this way. Verse 15 says, refers to Paul as, as having been given wisdom, which here is probably the wisdom of divine inspiration more than just the wisdom of a good mind. So that's the first thing, that this canon now is being expanded to include these new writings, Paul being one of them. Second important claim for our doctrine of Scripture. Scripture can be hard to understand. 
many Christians throughout the centuries have been encouraged that Peter saw the Lord Jesus, witness to the resurrection. Peter, who was the first among equals in the early church, this Peter who performed miracles, Peter who gave the sermon at Pentecost, this Peter says about Paul, I'm not sure I get everything. So, Peter recognizes, even in Paul, there are some things that are hard to understand. The Bible is not all simple. Now, Christians have always believed in what is called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity means clarity. It's sort of an ironic word because the word is not clear, but perspicuity means the clarity of Scripture. So, Christians have believed that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. It means that the message of salvation is clear. It means the basic, most central elements of the biblical storyline, those are understandable. You don't have to have an advanced degree. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Whether you are an uneducated, you may be a child, and you ought to be able to understand this. In fact, it is a good test for us. Do we truly understand the gospel? Ask yourself, could I explain this to a seven-year-old in a way that she could understand? If not, if, if you have to use words like covenantal nomism, then scrap it, okay? You need to figure out something else. Now, having said all that, the perspicuity of Scripture... Christians, as we've held to that historically, have always said that does not mean everything in Scripture is equally clear. Now, we, can all, we should all be able to understand Jesus Christ is the way. We must repent. We must believe in Him. We must obey His commands. That is clear. But that doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is equally clear. There is a place for, for scholarship, for study, for knowing original languages, for looking at ancient cultures, some doctrines are very complicated, some theological points you may hear the first time and you just scratch your head and you say, I don't know, that's a, that's a new concept, that's a new word. How do we, as, as CJ said this morning, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, I don't even want to think about it, just forget it. Some parts are difficult, we understand all of Scripture, but some of it's tricky. Here, here's the third observation about Scripture. And it's the flip to this second point. Even the hard parts in the Bible still have right and wrong interpretations. Notice, Peter did not say, some things in Paul are hard to understand, so who's to say what's right or wrong? All we have are our interpretations. No. He says, some things are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable get wrong. So Peter did not think just because something was difficult that that precluded there being a right answer to the difficult question. So many Christians have a tendency toward intellectual laziness. And it is, it is laziness that dishonors the Word of God, and it dishonors the God of the Word. You just come to something that doesn't make sense in its first glance, and you say, ah, forget about it. Predestination, ah, it's just confusing. 
Uh, what, what are the, how should I think about the roles of men and women? Well, a lot of smart people disagree on this. I, I, I don't know. And we give up. And we say, well, a lot of smart people can't see eye to eye on it. And we just have our interpretations. Now, Peter, you notice, is not afraid to say there are hard things. But that does not mean that there are not right and wrong answers to the hard things. And here's the fourth point. There's this little aside here before we get into the main message. See, I didn't preach this morning. I didn't preach last week. So I've got to give you a little mini message before we get into the message. So four, some wrong interpretations can kill you. And let me be clear. There is certainly room for Christians to disagree on certain issues. In our growth group this week, we are studying Romans 14. And there Paul is talking about matters of conscience and food and Sabbath days and holy festivals. And he says very clearly, let each person with those sort of issues be be convinced in his own mind. And you should not judge each other. So we need to have a category as Christians that there, there, are, there are going to be some issues we put in this box that's marked good Christians will disagree. So we need to have that. Now, what Peter is saying here is sort of the other side. Look, he's saying, there are some interpretations that are not just agree to disagree sort of interpretations. They are not just wrong. They are deadly. He says they are twisting them to their own destruction. I can tell you, I I have been in sort of debates before. Both sides using the Bible. You have these church leaders over here. You have these church leaders over here. They're both using the Bible to try to defend their position. And what tends to happen is you have good, honest, sincere Christians who get confused and think, well, they both use the Bible, then I guess both sides must be okay. If, you know, they have some verses about sexuality and they have some verses. And, well, who's to say? But Peter suggests, no, no, no. You can use the Scripture. You can be quoting verses. You can be explaining verses and do it in such a way that it is misguided, unfaithful, and twisted such that it leads to your own destruction. So it is possible that you use Scripture and you get it wrong and dreadfully wrong. Not every issue is this serious, but certainly here in Second Peter we're talking about one of those issues. Whether or not God's people must strive for holy lives whether or not sexual sin must be taken seriously, we are talking about an issue that is at the heart of Christianity. So to twist the Bible, to twist the Bible so that you can call sin a blessing or call those who oppose the sin, whatever sort of names, then then you, you are spinning the Scriptures, which leads us back to the, to the main theme. The conclusion and the theme. Grow in godliness. Let me just say, I have a growing concern. A growing concern that evangelical Christians do not take seriously 
the Bible's call to personal holiness. I believe that many of us are too at peace with worldliness in our homes. Too at ease with sin in our own lives. Too content with spiritual immaturity. So always remember, Jesus Christ came into the world not only to save us from the guilt of sin, but that He might save us to holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Ephesians 1.4 We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church, gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her so He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Titus 2.14, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. I love what J.C. Ryle says. We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. And my, my concern is that Christians in a very, very good effort, which I have applauded as loud as I can, to make the gospel central in everything, that if we are not discerning in how we make the gospel central in everything, it can lead to a kind of antinomianism where we forget, okay, Jesus has not only saved me from something, but then we give very little thought and very little concern what he has saved us to. And I I find that among some Christians, there is even a hostility to talking about personal holiness. I think there are a number of reasons for this. Let me just give you a few. Number one, it was too common in the past that Christians would equate holiness with abstaining from a, a, a few taboos. So, drinking, smoking, dancing. And in a previous generation, maybe that meant... That's holy. Those things sound fun. Don't do them. Drinking, dancing, smoking. And if you, if you don't do those things, then you're holy. If you do, then you're not. And more and more younger generations see that in some ways those, those rules are man-made. And so they say, well, if, if, that's, if that's holiness, that's what they hear. Holiness means I can't square dance or something. Well, that might just be a good idea anyways. But holiness means that, then I'm not interested in thinking about it. Here's a second reason. It's related to the first. There is a fear, I think, among some Christians that a passion for holiness is going to make you then some kind of backwater sort of fundamentalist or something. And as, as soon as you talk about, well, I don't think swearing is a good idea. Or you might want to be careful with the movies you watch or the music. Or men, women, what, what are the ways you're dressing? 
What about sexual purity? What about self-control or godliness? You talk about those things and some people get very nervous and say, well, that's going to be legalism. Don't, don't talk about any of that. It's legalistic. Here's a third reason some of us are allergic to holiness, thinking about holiness. We live in a culture of cool. And what is cool? What does it mean to be cool? To be cool, you have to be different than others. You dress like everyone, watch the same stuff, do all the same things. You're not cool. You're a Midwesterner or something, you know. So cool means you are differentiating yourselves. And to differentiate yourself, it means you must push the boundaries of language, the boundaries of entertainment, the boundaries with alcohol, the boundaries of fashion. Of course, holiness is is more than just those things. But what I'm saying is in an effort to be hip, many Christians have figured, well, holiness doesn't touch any of those things. Movies, drink, food, entertainment, dress, none of those things. And so they have willingly embraced Christian freedom, but they have not earnestly pursued Christian virtue. That's that's, that's not hip. I mean, if you do that, people are afraid you're going to end up, you know, wearing an open-collared button-up shirt and khaki pants and someone's going to dress up like you on Halloween or something. (laughs) Where is? There he is. It's not hip. Let me give you a fourth reason. Among more liberal Christians, it's it's often thought that a radical pursuit of holiness is suspect because as soon as you talk about right and wrong behaviors, it feels judgmental, feels intolerant. And if we're going to talk about without spot or blemish, you just kind of get uneasy. Well, who who among us is without spot or blemish? How how can we talk about this? And so we refrain from distinguishing among good or bad actions or attitudes or habits or what's pure or what's impure because that gets you in trouble. Here's a fifth reason why some of us are allergic to talking about holiness. Listen carefully to this. Among conservative Christians like us, like, like me, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel centered, we will not talk about commands or imperatives or exhortations. In fact, I was, uh, when I was taking CJ back to the airport. CJ preached here this morning. and I said, now, how did I do? Give me a critique. What, what, what can I do better? Nothing. But I said, well, let me tell you some things I liked. I said, I liked how you went at the end of the sermon to the end of Jude and you talked about how God is the one who keeps us. He's, he's the father holding our hand. We're the child. We hold, but it's really his hold. But, so you landed on the grace of God and you did it in a way that was encouraging, hope-filled, and, and without erasing everything you had said up to that point. There can be a, a, a tendency if we're not careful. You sort of teach and you preach and you talk about, here's commands, here's what the Bible says. And then at the end, you just say, oh, by the way, no biggie. And that's not how the, go- the gospel should come at the beginning as the ground out of which we obey. It should come at the end as the power for obedience, as the hope that God will be faithful to do this in us. But that does not erase the need for exhortation. And so some of us get very afraid of words like 
obedience or exertion or Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or the command to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Or Paul says he warns us against even a hint of immorality among the saints, Ephesians 5.3. I see, especially among younger Christians, my age, a little older, a little younger, college students, there is a renewed passion. Talk to college students. You'll find this to be true. A renewed passion for social justice. There is a, a, a renewed passion for transforming our cities. There is a renewed passion among many for precise, careful theology. There is, I hope, a passion for evangelism. Now, assuming you can define all of those things in, in the right way, I, I want all of those. I want all of those. But I simply ask this question as I look around at my own heart and our church, and the broader church, where, where is the generation of Christians who are equally passionate about personal holiness. I want every Christian on fire for all of those things, but I think God wants a corresponding passion for honoring Christ with Christ-like obedience. We want leaders on campus who will say with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk. And not just in the big categories, pornography and drunkenness. But look carefully how you walk. When is the last time any of us took a verse like Ephesians 5.4? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. When is the last time we took a verse like that? No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. And we even began to try to apply that to the movies we watch, to the television shows we TiVo, to the commercials we just mindlessly intake during a, f- a football game, to the YouTube clips. The fact of the matter is, There are commands in the New Testament to evangelize. Something we want to grow in. There are actually few. There are commands to care for the poor. Also, be happy to grow in that. There are actually few. What there are many, many dozens and dozens of verses of that the New Testament enjoins us in one way or another to be holy as God is holy. This letter of Second Peter is about one thing, growth in godliness. We saw it at the very beginning of the letter, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's growth through knowledge. Verse 3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse 5, For this reason, make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. That's what Peter means by holiness, by growing in these virtues. And the whole letter, look at chapter 1, verse 12, the whole letter is intended to remind us of these qualities. And so when we get to the end of chapter 3, in the end of the letter, Peter circles around and he uses some of the very same language. Verse 14, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Verse 17, take care you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the big idea is pretty clear. You have these false teachers telling you anything goes. However you want to live, do it. Avoid them and make an effort to be godly. Grow in grace. You have to picture Peter writing to this congregation. Many of them were just newly established in the faith. He was worried about their stability. It's, it's like you're talking to nine-year-old. Their sort of Christianity is at a level of a nine-year-old. Any nine-year-olds here? Don't mean any offense to you. They're just sort of at a nine-year-old. And, and the question is, you have the false teachers who are saying, you're nine? You can act like you're two. Go for it. Be a big baby. No, no, no that, that's not the right advice for nine-year-olds. Nine-year-olds, maybe you could act like a ten-year-old. Maybe you could be a little bit ahead. You're growing up to a young boy, to a young lady, getting older. More responsibility. That's what these false teachers are saying. Go ahead. Go back. You don't have to grow up. Go back to the things you used to do. Can you and I say that our lives are marked by more holiness now than two years ago? It's not a rhetorical question. I hope many of you say, yes, I can I think some of us have to say, wait a second, what am I, when, when, I, when I became a Christian, and I was very passionate, very zealous, and since then I've really kind of given up the fight, and I'm, I'm not as cautious, and I'm, I'm less concerned about what's going into me, and what I'm watching, and what's going on in my heart, and what I'm laughing at. We must grow. Why? Should we make an effort to increase in virtue? Why should every Christian earnestly, faithfully, diligently pursue holiness? Second Peter gives us many reasons. This is a great thing about the Bible. Don't miss this. God is always giving us lots of angles. You know... There are lots of reasons one becomes a Christian. One of them is, if not, you will face the wrath of God. But there are other reasons. To know the love of God, to not, no longer fear. To, so there, God is always giving us lots of angles to look at things and lots of reasons. And so we, when we come to the issue of holiness, too often we think, well, why do we be holy? God said so. And that's a reason, that's a, that's a good reason, because he's God. But you need to sort of come at it some other ways. If that's all you do to help each other, and you confront people, well, you have sin in your life, and God said, don't do it, so don't do it. You're not getting the fullness of Scripture. 
Second Peter gives us, I count, at least 20 reasons for holiness. You, you ready to, to get the fire hose here? Number one, we pursue holiness so we might become partakers of the divine nature. One, verse four. We make every effort to grow in godliness because God has already set us free from the corruption that is in the world. Chapter one, verse four. We grow in grace so we will not be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. One eight. We pursue Christ-like character so we will not be blind, not forgetting that we have been cleansed from our former sins. One nine. We work hard at holiness in order to make our calling and election sure. As a staff, for some insane reason, we're reading through Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards' big book, and he's trying to talk about how, how, what are the signs that you truly have religious affections. And if we ever get to the end of the book, we'll find that the very last sign, he says the chief sign, is fruit. Same thing that Peter says in chapter 1. You want to make your calling and election sure? You want to, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know I'm one of God's elect? There's fruit. We practice these godly qualities so there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Chapter 111. We pursue godliness because Jesus is coming back in great power. Chapter 116 through 21. We walk in obedience to Christ because those who wander into sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. 2-3. We are serious about holiness because we believe God knows how to judge the wicked and save the righteous. Chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. We turn from ungodliness because sin is ugly. Peter calls them blots and blemishes, irrational animals, unsteady souls, accursed children. So he makes it look distasteful. We pursue holiness because sin never delivers on its promises. Chapter 2, verse 17. We pursue holiness because those who live in their sin and return to their sin are like those who go back into slavery, those who return to the mire, those who get down and put their face in their own vomit. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. We remember to be holy... Because in the last days there will be scoffers who will tell us to follow our own desires. We make every effort to be godly because the world will not always continue as it is. But the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire and the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. We take Christ-likeness seriously because we do not know when the Lord will return. Chapter 3, verse 10. We pursue holiness because all our works will be exposed on the last day. Chapter 3, verse 10. We pursue holiness because whatever we live for in this life will be burned up and dissolved. 3.11. We strive for obedience and repentance to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. 3.12. We live in righteousness now because we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell forever. 3.13. And finally, we pursue godliness so that Christ might be glorified now and to the day of eternity. 3. Verse 20. So that's Second Peter. Do you get the picture? Do you, do you see the theme? Peter's just telling you, just boxer and just jab, hook, jab, hook. 20, 20 different ways I count. It's over and over again saying, 
You've got to be holy. Because Jesus is coming back and you don't know when and you want to participate in the divine nature and sin doesn't pay and you return to slavery and it's an ugly thing and He's just giving you more and more ammunition to fight sin and pursue godliness. Let me just finish here by zeroing in on verse 14 briefly. So that's what is in the whole book. And now Paul sums up his argument with two final exhortations. Be diligent and be penitent. Chapter 314. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. The language to be found by him is judicial language. You're there before the judge and you are found by him to be without spot or blemish. Now, it may be tempting for us to immediately say, well, that spotlessness is the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which, which is certainly a biblical truth. But to be fair, I don't see that circling around here. I think Peter is saying, you must demonstrate on the last day some sort of moral uprightness. Now, this term, without spot or blemish, don't think, ah, that means absolute moral perfection. This is the language used for the sacrifices, and it could often be used just to refer to a, a moral, some sort of moral uprightness, just like the sacrifices were acceptable, something acceptable in your character. Just so you think, well, I don't know. That's, you're getting close to what about justification by faith alone? You're discouraging me. Yes, don't want to do that. But listen to what the Scriptures say. Ephesians 1.4, we're chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Colossians 1.22, we have been reconciled to God in order that we might be holy and blameless. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you blameless before the presence of his glory. So one scholar, Tom Schreiner, says, when we examine texts where similar idea is found, it is apparent that being spotless and blameless is necessary for eternal life. We should not confuse this with moral perfection, at least in this life. The New Testament does teach, however, that those who belong to God's people will live godly lives and they will be perfected on the last day. So our, our systematic theology helps us because it helps guard us here against errors where we'd think somehow we're meriting God's favor. But we must be careful that we don't run away from what this is saying. On the last day, there must be some evidence of holiness in our lives. Some evidence to demonstrate that the verdict, this one has been justified by faith, is a true verdict. So in verses 9, chapter 1, verse 9, talks about having these qualities. Verse 11, again, that... If we have these qualities, there will be a rich inheritance for us. So there must be some evidence 
there must be increase. Chapter 1, verse 5, make every effort to supplement. Chapter 1, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So there must be evidence, there must be increase, and there must be a demonstration of effort. Verse 5, chapter 1, make every effort. Chapter 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Chapter 3, 14, be diligent. So what I would say, we're not being judged. We're, it, our, our justification is not grounded in this obedience. Justified by faith alone. But there must be evidence of holiness, some measure of increase in holiness, and a demonstration of effort toward holiness. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to work. That, that, those are the implications of the gospel. I don't want us to run away from that and think, no, no, if we're gospel Christians, we're not holiness Christians. No, because we're gospel Christians, we love holiness. And that requires diligence. I apologize for frequency of sports illustrations, especially today. But here's one more. Some of you may, if you follow the NBA, followed in the offseason this debacle that was the LeBron James decision where he had this very self-congratulatory, I thought, press conference and interview about he was a free agent. He was with the Cavaliers and he went to the Miami Heat. Dwayne Wade was there and he's superstar and this other superstar, Chris Bosh. So you have three of the best players all going on the Miami Heat. Instantly made everyone hate the Miami Heat, like the Yankees. They were talking about they were going to break all these records, and they got off to sort of a slow start this year, lost a few games. After a recent win this past week, Chris Bosh, one of their superstars who had a good night, they won. He said this, we, we, we got back to getting after it again. I guess Coach Spoolstra, their coach, felt he was loosening up a little bit too much. Bosch said he knows he has to meet us halfway. He wants to work. We want to chill. I would not be happy as a coach if that's what one of my players said. The coach must meet us halfway. I hope the coach realizes that we're the superstars. He's, he's not as loose as he used to be, but he has to meet us halfway because he wants us to work and we want to chill and we'll sort of meet halfway. Some of us are like that with God. We're the superstars. God, you're this coach. You want obedience. You want holiness. We're going to chill. Okay? God, give a little. All right? I, I'm not really interested in diligence. I'm not interested in effort. I'm not interested in Christianity being difficult, so let's chill. James 127. You remember, pure, undefiled religion consists in these two things that you care for widows and orphans in their distress, and that you keep yourselves unstained from the world. Now, there has been in recent years a rediscovery among evangelicals of the first half of, of that sentence. Caring for widows and orphans. It's easy to forget that. 
and I'm just pleading, that we don't forget the second half of the sentence either. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Where is the world pressing in on you? Where are you just, you're looking. Do you ever think about that verse in Ephesians I read earlier? Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Brothers and sisters, we rent DVDs that have more than hints. You figured out what it is. You, we're probably going to watch a movie tonight, so we're going to relax. We're going to chill, okay? So you, can't, you just got to think about this. This is a category. Holiness. Here's the second thing. Be diligent. Second, be penitent. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is where we know that Peter has not somehow gone off the rails and he's arguing that we need to earn our salvation. He says, you're diligent and you're also penitent. If you just hear the the pursuit of holiness as diligence, you will give up tomorrow. I promise you, you will give up tomorrow in the pursuit of holiness because you will fail. So you must always have you be diligent and then you be penitent. Because you're going to mess up. It says in verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Remember, these people were saying, God is not coming back. This God is so slow. He's never returning. And Peter says, time out. God's slowness is the best thing going. Because it means he has not yet judged you. He is giving people time to repent So where do you need to grow? Where in your life have you been refraining from effort? Where do you need to repent? Is it with your eyes? What are you seeing? Is it with your ears? What you're listening to? With your mouth? What you're saying? With your heart? What you're you're feeling? what What you laugh at? What you lust at? Is it with your hands what you're doing? Is it with your feet where you've been going? See, there, there are texts in the Bible that help us fight off self-righteousness, thinking that somehow it depends on us. And then there are texts that help us fight unrighteousness. And the Christian life really consists in, in holding passionately to both of those texts. And very few churches can do it. They're either through here or here. Those were the two problems in the early church. License and legalism. Second Peter is one of those books about unrighteousness. Are you diligent? Are you penitent? Close with this quote from J.C. Ryle. From holiness. If you're ever looking to get a book... Holiness. It's it's my one. It's in the top ten, my favorite books. He says there are three things, which according to the Bible are absolutely necessary to the salvation of every man and woman. These three are justification, regeneration, and sanctification. All three meet in every child of God. He is both born again and justified. And sanctified. He that lacks any one of these three things is not a true Christian in the sight of God. 
and dying in that condition will not be found in heaven and glorified in the last day. Father in heaven, we rest in the promise in chapter 1 that your divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is power, power for this life. We're not leaving here just summoning up strength. There's power. So through our knowledge of you, may this power flow into holiness. May University Reformed Church, may the pastors of University Reformed Church, may each of us be marked by holiness. For you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.